Well, good morning. It is good to be with you here this morning, and I'm very eager for this opportunity and thankful as well for the chance to be able to be here and to open up the truth of Scripture with you and from my heart to be encouraged and set on fire just as I hope yours will be as well this morning. You know, my takeaway from my time here already today is that I need to come to the Master's College more often because you learn things at the Master's College, things that I would not otherwise have necessarily learned, like the fact that today is National Name Your Car Day. Thanks, Pete, for that. That's very useful. And as Pete was up here giving um, his little introductory chapel etiquette speech about not using your technology, I will confess that I was using my technology, and I was Googling, what should I name my car? Because I've never before actually had a name for my car. And lo and behold, there is a test online that you can take, 10 questions. You can fill it in, and you can see, what should I be naming my car? And so I was doing that. I'm sorry, Pete, I, I ask your forgiveness. <laughs> but it gave me a conclusion, and I will confess to you that it was not what I was hoping. And, and if this is your name here this morning, I do apologize. But the name that I got for my car based on my personality is Becca. So, Becca, there you go. But that was not what I was expecting. I was expecting speed or crush or something. And <laughs> Becca is what I've got to work with. So, welcome to the Master's College, I suppose. <laughs> Becca and I will be going back to the Master's Seminary right after I'm done. <laughs> well, this is exciting this morning. I, I do have a message for you that is heavy on my heart and I'm eager to share with you. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, is where we will be spending our time together this morning. And as you're turning there, let me just give you a brief story to open our time this morning. July 5th, 2009, was a really, really good day in the small village of Hammerwich, England. I have no idea where that is, but it was a good day in that small town. It was quiet as you'd expect England to be. It was cool, and it was out in the country. The season for plowing the fields had just come to a close, but before those fields had been planted, there was a man who lived in that village, and his name was Terry Herbert. And he decided, like the true nerd that he was, to spend some time pursuing his hobby before those fields were planted as an amateur treasure hunter. And he spent the day in that freshly tilled field, the field of a friend, sweeping the ground with his metal detector. And it didn't take long at all, actually. He was only out there for a couple minutes before that machine in his hands began to beep furiously at him. And to his amazement, he pulled out his shovel and he dug for a very short while. And there, just below the surface, Terry pulled out of the dirt an ancient artifact made of nothing short of pure gold mixed with precious stones set into that pure gold. It was a crown, as a matter of fact. And what do you think, what do you suppose Terry then proceeded to do with the rest of his day? He did what I think most of you would have done, right? Call your RA and cut classes for the rest of the day, right? That's exactly what he did. He didn't go back to work, he didn't go back to bed, he didn't even go to the bank. He put the crown in his pocket and he kept searching. And over the next five days, Terry did not go back to work. In fact, Terry never went back to work again. <laughs> but 
he kept digging out in that field all day, every day for five days in a row. And after five days of very intense and secretive labor, he had done a lot of digging. And he had filled 244 bags with ancient treasure. And he said to himself, self, I think it's time we call on the professionals because this is getting a little out of control. I would have concluded that on day one, but it took Terry five days. <laughs> the treasure kept coming, so he finally decided to stop digging. And since that day, archaeologists have uncovered 3,500 pieces of treasure in that one single field, all ancient, gilded, gold, precious stone weapons dating back to around 700 A.D., and no one knew to look for that treasure in that field until Terry Herbert came along. He stumbled across these treasures in his path, and now he and the owner of that field are both very, very, very wealthy men. Now, the moral of this story, just let me be clear, it's not to go buy a metal detector and dig up the soccer field, okay, because they'll never invite me back. But when you find a treasure, what do you do with it? You pursue it, you take ownership of it, and you keep it. And that is exactly Jesus' point in Matthew 13, 44, right? When you find a treasure, you take ownership of it, and then, you, then you, you live like you own it. And that's what he's saying. Look at this verse with me. One very simple verse that we'll spend our time in together. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. This is the message of Jesus to his disciples this morning, and I want to tell you why this matters to you. You say, number one, I don't understand that parable. Number two, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with it. Well, I'm going to tell you this morning, here is why this matters to you as a 21st century college student. At a time when you're figuring out the rest of your lives, when you have your hopes, your dreams, your desires, on the one hand, and on the other, your, your fears, your challenges, and your obstacles. I was told that the theme for the year this year in chapel is essentially, what would I, as the preacher, do differently if I could go back and be in college and do it all over again? I'll tell you this morning that there's a lot of minor things that I would indeed change. I would get involved in more extracurriculars. I would spend more time building friendships. I would figure out life faster. And those are all the minor things that I would change. And yes, I would do those. But in reality, college is about getting set up for the future. And the one thing I wish I had done more of in college is this. And it's this parable. Learn to love Christ more. That is why you're here. And that is what every day in your life is all about. Everything else that happened to me in college, I'll be honest, I don't remember anything. Even much from my classes, if I can admit that. But I don't remember anything. I've got some digital photos and I've got some faded memories that are snapshots inside my head, but it's gone. And it hasn't been that long. It's only been a short 10 years since I graduated college. And I'll tell you something, and maybe this marks me as an awful human being, but I can't even remember most of my roommates' names from college. That's not good, but I'll admit that to you. At Bob Jones, we didn't have the same roommates for four years, mind you, so maybe that's in my defense. But the point is, it's fading, it's fleeting. This is not everything here today. But Christ is everything here today, and so we must find him. He is our treasure. We must pursue him. 
And once we found him, we must hang on to him and cling to him. What's the one thing I should have done more of? Learn to love Christ. Now this parable comes to us at the end of a very long day in Jesus' ministry. And, and some of the disciples that were in that room that morning, that night, they had to be wondering whether the sacrifice was truly worth the reward because Jesus, Scripture tells us, had spent the entire day talking about the cost of discipleship, picking up crosses, spiritual heart transplants, rejecting worldliness, and giving up everything you hold dear. This is not some sort of easy, ancient, easy believism, right? These men were saying, I'm just a fisherman. Why would I go through all this trouble? And and for you, it's the same question. You're saying, I'm just a student. Why bother now? I've got the rest of my life in front of me. Well, here's his answer. And I'll warn you right now, it's a direct challenge to you and to me. It's a direct encouragement to you and to me. It's a direct reminder to you and to me to pursue Christ because Jesus, and here's the point, Jesus is worth your pursuit. That's the point of this text. And we know this. I know that you know this, right? This is the master's college after all. And yet we still hesitate. We still choke. We still get distracted. So this morning, allow me from this one verse to just give you four very simple reasons to run hard and to learn fast and to pursue your master. Reason number one, the value of Jesus Christ and membership in his kingdom. The value is immeasurable. And right away, we're told, right, in verse 44, that what this man has found is a treasure, a treasure hidden in the field. And our very first question is, why in the world is there a treasure out in the middle of the field? That seems kind of strange to us, right? Well, in their world, before banks, the rich and the poor alike would bury their valuables in a place where only they knew the location. And, and those who were very wealthy, ancient sources tell us, would often invest one-third of their fortune in the commercial market. They would invest one-third of their fortune into jewelry and make it into jewelry so that if it became necessary to flee during wartime, it would be easily transportable to take with them. And then the final third, they would often bury as an insurance policy. And while it seems strange to us, that was a normal custom for them. There was an obvious problem with burying your fortune, right? And you can all see plainly what it is. If you tell anyone where it is, it's no longer secure. But if you don't tell anyone where it is, the location and the secret of that location dies with you if you get killed, which, by the way, in the ancient world tended to happen quite frequently. This is an often occurrence in the ancient world. Matthew 25 tells us the story of the slave who buries a treasure. This is not unusual. This is clearly the case here. This is just simply an unclaimed treasure that is long forgotten. The owner of the field didn't know it was there. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sold the field to this man. You say, well, that's kind of unethical, isn't it? No, it's not. Because Jewish law said that if you found money lying in a field, it was yours. In a world with no banks, in a world with no security systems, no no alarms, companies. This man isn't stealing. He's just simply having the best day of his life, finding this huge, unimaginably vast and wealthy treasure. The kind of treasure, we're told, it's one of great value, the text says. It's expensive, exceedingly precious, of tremendous worth, worthy of being highly prized. And in the parable, the point of the analogy is that this treasure is you belonging to Christ is you being part of his kingdom, and you cannot begin to fathom the value that that brings with it. Romans 8.32, 
Here it is, stated in spiritual terms. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If the value of knowing Christ and being in his kingdom is immeasurable, then how am I supposed to respond? All right, let's go from preaching and get into meddling. If the value of knowing Christ is truly immeasurable, of great and incomparable worth, then what am I supposed to do with that? Here it is. You dump the distractions and pursue Jesus. What do you have of value right now? You have a future, right? That's of value to you. You have a family. You have a reputation. And for most of you, you probably have a bank account that's being sucked dry by student loans. But at least it's something. And, and we attach a certain value to these things. But, but let me ask you, and let me challenge you this morning, which of those things will impact eternity if they're disconnected from Christ? He's everything. And what we're being told in this text is that you cannot put a price tag on who Jesus Christ is. The value of knowing him, it's immeasurable, so do not forget that. Apart from Christ, you're a pauper with nothing. But in Christ, you are the son or daughter of a king, a joint heir with the Son of God and a disciple of the righteous one. Therefore, I'm nothing, but he is everything to me. Truly, that is a treasure that cannot be measured. And yet, just look at the trinkets that we spend our lives upon. We pour ourselves out. We dump our resources, our time, and our energies into things that distract us from a treasure that is beautifully and wonderfully apparent and there before us. Life is short. And here's my challenge to you. Do not waste any of it. You blink and it's gone. I know that's cliche, but it is true. When you have kids, you'll start to recognize that even more than you do now. There's only one way to make your life mean anything. The eternal valuation of your life, it will be measured against your love for Christ. That's a relationship that is beyond any value. It is a treasure to you, so look at it that way. The value is immeasurable. That is why you believe. That is why you follow. That is reason number one. And you may sit here this morning and say, but have you, have you seen my syllabi? Have you seen my work schedule and the taskmaster that my boss has become? Have you seen my social calendar? I'm busy. You say, you're not this busy. You're not. Because here's reason number two. If the value is immeasurable, the content is obtainable. The content is obtainable. We're told that it's hidden in a field which a man found. He was able to find it. It was just lying there, sitting there, and he hid it again. The imagery here is it's of a man who's taking possession now of this treasure. He finds it, and he grabs it and takes possession of it. You can have this treasure. 1849, the year that the state of California really became populated by Western civilization, 
It was the year, you know it well, of the gold rush. There was a man named John Sutter who lived up in the Sacramento area, and he, on his ranch one day, found a huge chunk of gold. And within one year of him finding that chunk of gold, tens of thousands of people were flooding into the state, literally from every corner of the world, Europe, Asia, Australia, the eastern seaboard of the United States. They were all coming, rushing into California to find the gold that was here, to find the treasure. Gold so plentiful at the start that it was literally just lying around on the ground. And all you had to do was see it, look at it, and stake your claim. Drive a stake into the ground, that's where the phrase comes from, saying, this piece of ground, it belongs to me. I got here first, and whatever's on it, I keep. But the point is, you take possession of what's there. Well, here in this text, there's a free gold rush that's being offered. The treasure, we're told, is just lying there. If you can see it, you can have it. So stake your claim. Here's the spiritual reality. In order to see the treasure of who Christ is, God has to do a work in your heart to open your eyes because there are many, many people, and perhaps even here in this room, who walk through the field, but they're totally oblivious to the treasure that Jesus Christ is all around them. The value of salvation, it's obvious to those who recognize it for what it is, and if you can see it, you can have it. But if you do see him, what do you then do? You have two options. If God has opened your eyes to the value of Christ, either you can pick up that treasure and run with it, or you can leave it there. And the right answer is obvious, is it not? Pick it up. That's what you're supposed to do. If you're walking down the street and see this huge pile of cash, you're supposed to pick it up, right? Don't just leave it there. That's exactly what this man does. He takes ownership of this treasure by hiding it for himself. You don't rehide something that does not belong to you. If you do, that's called stealing, right? How foolish would this man have been to stumble on this treasure to find the object of his search and then just walk away and say, wow, that was a really great challenge. I'm so glad I found it. What's next? No. When you find something of inestimable value that is available to you, you take it, you use it, you guard it, but you surely don't ignore it. So I ask you this morning, have you seen the glory of God in the person of Christ? Or are you stumbling around the field of your life, trampling all over the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he's offering to you? Have you seen him? Now, I know most of you, if not many of you, have. And if you have, then here's what you must not forget. Being at the master's college, that's not the treasure. Your GPA, that's not the treasure. Your friends, they are not the treasure. Your treasure is Christ and membership in the kingdom of God. Can you see him clearly? And if you can, then chuck the stuff and cling to him. If you've seen the salvation that Christ is offering to you, if you've experienced that salvation, don't live like you're unaware of it. 
when you see his grace that has the power to transform you, how, I ask you, how can you, how can I live like it has no bearing or power to transform who we are? When you see the truth of Christ, you dare not ignore him. Instead, you believe him, and you follow him, and you learn to love him. Because a relationship with him, the content of that treasure, it is obtainable before you this very day. So grab it and possess it. Why do I seek after the kingdom of God? Why do I seek after a relationship with Christ? Why do I say if I could do it all over again, I would learn to love him more? Reason number two, because he's right there offering his hand of friendship to me. It's there for the taking. It's not theft, it's not stealing, it's the right thing to do. But it's gonna cost you something and that's reason number three. If the value is immeasurable and the content is obtainable, here we're told that the cost is minimal. And look at verse 44, what does he say there? Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. That's what it costs him. Now, I know you're all looking at me with a little bit of suspicion right now because you're saying, preacher, you're talking nonsense out of both sides of your mouth. On the one hand, you're saying the cost is minimal. On the other hand, the text is saying he had to go and sell everything he owned. What are you actually talking about here? Well, you know. This is the master's college. And we all know what we have to give up in order to be his disciple. How many sermons have you heard on the cost of discipleship? Everything equals nothing right, from Jesus' perspective. But the action of this man, it's actually surprising because many people might look at him scrambling to sell everything and think him to be a stupid fool. What are you doing giving everything you have to purchase this field? They don't understand because they can't see the treasure for themselves. But in reality, to have that treasure in your grasp and walk away because taking possession of it seems to be too expensive... That's the stupid fool thing to do. This man gives everything he's got in order to obtain one thing, and he does this because he knows that the value of possessing the treasure is so great that it is worth infinitely more than the total sum of his sorry possessions. So, what does he do? He sells everything without reservation, without holding back, in totality, recognizing that compared to the value of his find, giving up everything is in reality a very minimal cost. It costs him nothing to gain everything if he is willing to sacrifice everything. There's a missionary named Jim Elliott, and you may well know the story, but He was a missionary to the native Aka Indians in the land of Ecuador, and he would end up losing his life at the sharp end of a spear. He put this principle in memorable terms. Now, this is a man, mind you, who when he was your very age in college had everything. From a fairly wealthy family, had no money problems. He was very popular in the student body. He had a great academic career going on, and he was an esteemed and highly regarded athlete. He had everything going for him, and yet he dumped it all to pursue Christ and to give his life to a tribe of Indians who meant nothing to him. 
And when people asked him, Jim, what are you doing? How can you do this? Look at your life of promise that is before you and in front of you. Why have you abandoned that life to go out into the jungles and talk to the Indians? And here was Jim's response before he died. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the principle here. This is the only response that's valid to seeing the value of who Christ is. Everything you once held dear, your pursuit of worldliness, your possessions, your own attempts at righteousness, your pleasures and your pride, all of those things must be forgotten in view of the surpassing value of knowing who? Jesus Christ. Dump it, chuck it, shun it, forget it, but run and cling to Christ. That's my appeal to you, and that's the appeal that Jesus was making to his disciples here in this verse. Forget about all that stuff. Sell it all like this man because you recognize the value of knowing me. The Apostle Paul put it plainly in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, but wherever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And in that equation, what's the source of wealth? Well, you got to keep going into verse 9 of Philippians 3, that I may be found in Christ. That is your source of wealth. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through Christ, the righteousness that comes from God. So I ask you this morning, as you're plagued by the distractions that are in your life, as you're struggling through your issues of sin and trying to figure out, how do I love Christ when I'm out on my own? Let me ask you this question. What loss is it to trade death for life, destruction for salvation, the rags of sin for the riches of his grace? And you phrase it that way, this is a no-brainer. Let me give my trinkets, do whatever you will with them, but I must have the glories of Christ. Is that the cry of your heart this morning? It must be if you've seen his grace. Everything is yours. I forfeit all. And I know that that's a small price to pay. When you have this perspective, the question is not, why is the kingdom of God so expensive the question becomes, how can the kingdom of God be so free? And yet, and trust me when I say I speak to myself every bit as much as I speak to you this morning, we insist on messing around. We waste our time, we make excuses, we fail to pursue Christ because we see his request as being, let's face it, a little, maybe, extreme, unfair, too heavy a requirement. What are you hanging on to for crying out loud? What in your life do you look at and say, I couldn't live without it. I couldn't live without him. I couldn't live, I couldn't bear the thought of living without her. I've been there, I'm married. 
I know what it's like to date your future spouse. But is it worth sacrificing knowing Christ and pursuing him for what amounts to nothing in the scope of eternity? How could we say then, that's a cost too high, Jesus. That's a bridge too far. That's an ask too much. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would probably say, even though we wouldn't say it out loud, but in our hearts, we act as though we have the perspective that to be truly happy in this life, we need God, and then you fill in the blank. We need God on academic success. Do you act that way? We need God and financial stability. Is that your perspective? We need God, and we must have, at all costs, a respectable career. God on a vibrant social life. We run to these other things in this life, taking God along with us, of course, because we're good Christian folk trying to find our happiness, never fully grasping the reality that Christ and Christ alone, relationship to him, being connected into the vine that brings you your life, that is the only thing in your life that is worth anything. So why do I seek after the kingdom of God? Reason number three, because it, the cost is minimal. It costs me nothing because it cost Christ everything. And that leads us into the fourth reason we're given here in this verse. The fourth reason why we must pursue him from pure, clean, fully devoted hearts is because the transaction that he has made is final. Look at how this one verse parable ends. Then, in his joy, he buys that field. We're told that after this man has sold everything, he makes a legal transaction whereby this treasure is permanently and eternally acquired and made his own. The interesting thing here is that the transaction that allows you and me to acquire Christ is not a transaction that we make. It's a transaction that is final and has been made for us already. The bill of sale has already been drafted before you were even born. It's just waiting for God to open your eyes and you to grasp onto it, rejecting yourself and clinging to Christ. That final transaction, it's already taken place. He already paid. Jesus Christ himself paid the price and penalty for your sin. The legal requirements for redemption having already been fulfilled. The offer has been signed. The deal has been closed. And you now live in dependence upon him. There are no returns, no renegotiations. This is a final offer for those of you who are business majors. You can do nothing. Jesus has done everything permanent life in exchange for your stinking death. The precious blood of Christ in exchange for my allegiance to my sin. That's the transaction that I've received. So I must now live accordingly and pursue Jesus because he's worth it. 1 Peter 1.18 says it this way. 
Know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 12, this same Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thereby securing eternal salvation. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Huh. And here's where it comes home to those of us who know Christ. Do you not know? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, here's what you're now supposed to do in light of this final transaction that's been executed on your behalf. Glorify God in your body. And I'm going to go there. Do you live like this? Do you live today in light of the price tag that was required in order to purchase your soul for eternity? How does your life stack up to that expectation? You say to yourself, if I spend my time pursuing Christ as my highest affection, look at the things I'll miss out on. I won't have time to do whatever it is that you guys do in your spare time. Perhaps, just perhaps, I'll regret losing everything if I give everything to pursue Christ. But I bring your attention one final time back into this text. In all of this verse, do you see any sense of regret in the mind, the heart, or the life of this man who has given everything to pursue Jesus Christ? No. In fact, look. Look at the verse. What does it say is on his heart? What's the word that's used there in verse 44? Then in his what? Joy, right? He finds that in reality, the burden that he thought was going to be so great and the yoke that was placed upon him by these great demands of Christ is light. And the burden is easy, Jesus tells us. There's no regrets at all. He does not miss letting go of his sin. He forgets about his past life in view of the surpassing riches of Christ. And, and this is the truth. When you find Christ, when you've been saved by him, gladness and joy, if you're pursuing him, should be yours. Because there is no longer any condemnation for you. The transaction has been made, and now you possess permanently the riches of his salvation. So, do you live like it? I go back to the question where we started that was posed to me when I received the invitation to come here and be with you this morning. If, and oh, how I wish that if could be, if I could go back and get a do-over, a second try, I would make sure to wake up every day and run after Jesus Christ, developing a love for him, pursuing him, 
seeking him out in his word because that is where I'll find him and learn to love him. I would run from my sin that separates me from him. I would flee from my pride and I would get a whole lot more serious about wrecking the idols that prop themselves up inside my heart. He's everything. So I wish, oh how I wish, that I had loved him more. Now don't get me wrong. I loved him. But I wish I had loved him more. And I have that same desire for myself today because no matter how much you love him, it will never be sufficient in light of how he has first loved you. Jesus is worth your pursuit. What was Terry Herbert's response to having found his treasure? I never really finished that story, but here's what Terry said in an interview after he had found his treasure. He said, when I found that first piece, it made the hair on the back of my neck stand on end. That was his reaction to the treasure he had found. When you see the glory of Christ, how much more should your response be than Terry Herbert's? You should be shocked. You should be amazed. You should be motivated to run and pursue him. Do you know him? Can you even see the treasure? That's question number one for you who are here this morning. Have you found him? Have you acquired him and taken possession of him? And if you have, do you love him? Are you dropping everything in your life that is a distraction and running full tilt after him? We pursue Christ. He's our greatest desire, our highest reward. He is the priority. And so we come back to the same questions that the disciples were asking in their hearts when Jesus first gave this parable late one night 2,000 years ago. Is it worth it? And I think that Christ himself has answered that question for us, has he not? As we conclude, look at verse 51. Jesus told a series of stories to his disciples here, very similar in nature to one another, actually, all making the same point, I am worth it. And here is how Jesus ended his time of teaching that night with his disciples. Have you, in verse 51, have you understood all these things? Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yeah, we get it. You're worth it. And then Jesus goes on to say, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure that he now owns what is new and what is old. What Jesus is saying there is that if you understand the benefit of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, and a true love for Christ, if you get that, you must now live like that and use the treasure with which you've been entrusted accordingly. Do you get it? So live like it, Jesus says. You 
use now what you've been given because Jesus Christ is worth your pursuit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that impacts us so profoundly and powerfully. We thank you for your son who makes our lives meaningful. We thank you for granting us life in relationship to him. And we pray now that we, all of us, would be people who pursue him from hearts that have been redeemed, that see the value of who he is, and have been reminded of the greatness of his grace. So may we now use that grace to pursue Christ more today. We pray these things in Jesus' name.